Welcome to Healthonomics, a podcast about health, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the economics department. Today, my guest is Dr. Sankar Mukhopadhyay. Sankar is a professor of economics at the University of Nevada, Reno. Sankar, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for um, inviting me. Uh, Happy to uh, talk to you. So I'm excited to have Sankar here because he is my advisor. So I talk to him all the time and we have similar research interests. Um, But today we're talking about your paper, which is titled The Effects of Medicaid Expansion on Job Loss Induced Mental Distress During the COVID-19 Pandemic in the U.S. But before we get into that paper, tell me about your background in economics. Well, just briefly, I graduated from University of Pennsylvania uh, in 2005, and I joined UNR in the same year, and I've been here since then, like almost uh, 16 years now. (laughs) My research interest is, broadly speaking, in uh, health economics and in labor, uh, and and mostly essentially in the intersection of um, these two areas. Uh, especially how um, health and health policies affect labor market outcomes. Um, That's something that I am kind of most interested in these days. And that's a pretty hot topic these days because um, especially the home health workforce is seeing severe shortages and long-term care um, institutions are struggling with workforce shortages. So the workforce of healthcare sectors is a pretty hot topic right now. So with this paper, what is the primary research question that you are answering? And what are the highlighted findings of the paper before we dive into the details of it? So the basic question that I was interested in is like how well the social safety nets work uh, in times of crisis. Uh, So one of the arguments as to why we should have social safety net is that they are especially useful um, in times of crisis. And COVID-19 was obviously a once in a century kind of crisis um, that affected sort of many aspects of our life, including obviously uh, the labor market. And a lot of people lost jobs and we know that job loss can lead to mental distress. But the idea of the social safety nets is that in these times of uh, extraordinary distress, uh, this safety net essentially kind of catches you and makes um, those uh, uh, makes those crises maybe a little bit easier. Uh, that's kind of is the broad idea is that, well, okay, for all the people, like sort of some really millions and tens of millions of people that lost jobs, uh, especially in the early of the COVID pandemic, whether the social safety net, especially the Medicaid, helped with the mental distress that is associated with those uh, job losses because this affected essentially large, large number of people. So you're looking at um, essentially the efficacy of these subsidies that went out during the COVID pandemic and how they mitigated or reduced symptoms of mental distress that was caused by job loss. Is that correct? Not necessarily the subsidies that are that were specific to COVID, uh, although that might have an effect. But I'm interested in, uh, more broadly speaking, the states that were more well prepared. Like, for example, mm. uh, what we do know, specifically what I'm looking at is that we do know that some states chose to expand Medicaid uh, and some states did not. Like, for example, when the Affordable Care Act was first passed in 2010, uh, the idea was that all states would uh, expand Medicaid to include people up to 138% of the poverty level. Uh, Now, later, because of a Supreme Court decision that made it a state-level choice, some states chose to make that expansion and some states chose not to. So even we look at, like I said, now kind of jump to all the way to early 2020, 2020, uh, at that time when the COVID is just starting, some states uh, have expanded their Medicaid. Uh, In fact, uh, 38 states had already expanded their Medicaid. 12 states um, chose not to expand. So this created a, a different playing field in those states. In other words, more people in the expansion states were eligible for Medicaid services than in the non-expansion states. And, and that meant that 
like of all the people who lost jobs uh, during the uh, during the early part of the pandemic, like in March, April, and May of 2020, uh, a lot of people their incomes immediately kind of declined to like almost zero, and they became eligible for Medicaid in the expansion states. But in the non-expansion states, it's much more difficult to become eligible. And and basically, what I'm asking is that not not essentially like sort of say just the COVID specific uh, money that was spent uh, or, or distributed. It is like sort of the states that already expanded and had a broad eligibility criteria whether they fared better than the states that uh, chose not to expand. So states who were already prepared prior to the pandemic, yes. which are the states, expansion yeah, states. states that were already prepared prior to the pandemic. How did they uh, fare? How did those people how, fare? How did they fare? Especially like sort of say, how did the people who lost jobs in those states uh, kind of fared? So we know the pandemic obviously affected uh, labor supply. A lot of people lost their job in March 2020. And we know this anecdotally that job loss can induce severe mental distress. What do we know about this? What research is there to show that job loss can affect mental health? So there is actually quite a bit of research uh, that has already kind of showed that job loss uh, has an effect on, uh, on mental health. Obviously, we know that jobs is a very important part uh, of people's lives. Now, this is true everywhere. In fact, there is evidence uh, across the world that uh, the job loss or even the possibility of a job loss can induce mental distress. Uh, but this is especially true in the U.S. Uh, because in the U.S., unlike sort of most other developed countries, uh, your health insurance is also tied to your job. And a job loss may also mean a loss of health insurance uh, for the individual and maybe possibly their families. And losing health insurance can be a big distress in the U.S. because obviously health uh, is uh, expenditures are, can be quite high. Uh, and this is especially so in in the in the middle of a pandemic where everybody's health is kind of front and center in their mind because everybody's worried about getting COVID or suffering from COVID or having some related issues, especially in the early part of the pandemic where we did not really know as much about the pandemic uh, as we, for example, know today. So, so, so that's that's the idea is that um, that that there is a lot of research that shows that, especially in the U.S. Uh, job loss can induce um, a mental distress. And this paper, essentially, what we're trying to look at paper is that whether uh, having this uh, strong social safety nets through sort of things like Medicaid, expanded Medicaid, can ameliorate some of that problems. So what, um, I'm curious, because uh, in your paper, you cite that symptoms of anxiety or depression almost quadrupled between 2019 and 2020. Um, and this could be because I, what I'm trying to get at is how do you disentangle the correlation between these this increase of symptoms of anxiety due to job loss or is it due to the overall situation that we're in a international pandemic? I think it would be how do you... It, Talking to a grad student, how would you disentangle that correlation? What kind of methods would you use to make sure you get a clear causal identification of the research question you're trying to answer? So that's a very good question. Is that like an absolutely good question, which is that how do you know that how much of this is coming from just the pandemic itself uh, and how much of this is uh, job-induced? So that's what I think um, uh, that we have to have good data. So. Um, so the data that I use in this case is uh, called the Household Pulse Survey, which is um, a nationwide, uh, a nationally representative survey that's conducted by the Census Bureau. And over there, we know, um, like for any individual, whether the individual lost uh, their like own job, uh, whether they had a family member that lost the job uh, during the pandemic, or they... They, they had no job losses uh, in, in, in the family. So then what we can do is that we can compare people who like lost their own jobs to people who had no job losses uh, or people who had a family member who lost their job to people without job losses. So in other words, people who did not lose jobs, they work as a control group, so to speak, for these two treatment groups. Uh, one group is that people who lost their own job and another one is that who did not lose their job but had a family member 
that lost their jobs. So, so the people essentially who did not lose their job work as, as, as a control group. And then we can see that how is these uh, outcomes between the treatment and the control groups are different between expansion states and non-expansion states. So that's what we like in, in, in economics that we are in general econometrics, we will call a difference in difference. So we can look at the difference between the mental health outcomes of people who lost jobs versus people who did not in the expansion states and in non-expansion states. So we can difference out essentially the part that is purely due to job loss, which is not really the main question in this paper that I'm not really interested in that, that whether job loss causes uh, mental distress, because I think that's pretty well established. Uh, I'm interested in the second part is that whether once you have that distress, how much can medicates uh, help with that? So that's the broader identification strategy is, is to compare people who lost jobs versus people who did not in expansion versus non-expansion states. This data that you use, the household pulse survey data. So we've been working with this data on another project and it's really, really cool, good data. And I feel like not a lot of grad students know about it. Could you talk a little bit about this HPS data that we've been using, what other metrics does it measure? So it measures frequency of anxiety and depression symptoms. Um, it also gets some basic demographic metrics in there. But what else does this offer? And why might this be attractive to a grad student who is in the dissertation phase? Yeah, so this is, uh, there, are, there are a few things that are actually uh, makes this data set very interesting to work with. Um, one is that um, it's just the the recentness of the data, that how quickly they're updating. Typically, like sort of say, um, data that things that are happening now, it takes a while for us to know what is going on because um, even though the data is collected, uh, there is typically like a lag time before the data actually comes to the hands of the researchers. Uh, but census has done a great job uh, with this pulse survey about updating as to like sort of say, we pretty much know what was happening last month uh, or a couple of months ago, how current a topic you can address. Uh, the second is uh, typically in social, in social science, we don't really get good high frequency data. Uh, and that's another aspect of this data that is very useful is that this is sort of not like high frequency in maybe in a finance sense, it's not second by second, but, but we are used to mostly uh, annual data sets where people are surveyed once and then they are surveyed one after one year. Here, uh, it's not panel, so you're not following the same people, uh, but it's a repeated cross-section, but it's, it was done weekly uh, in the beginning, in the first part of the pandemic, and then it was bi-weekly. So even though it is uh, not a panel that you are not following people, you know how the cross-section of a country looks like uh, at a relatively high frequency, uh, either weekly or bi-weekly. Um, so that's another aspect of the data that is, I think, unique to compared to some of the other data sets that we use uh, in social science. Uh, the closest that comes to is the CPS monthly data, but CPS monthly data is not nearly as detailed as HPS, uh, especially if you're interested in questions like, sort of say, aspects of health, health insurance, and things like that, because CPS does not ask all those questions in their uh, simply as monthly questionnaires. They're only asked essentially um, once a year in CPS. Yeah, I think the high frequency uh, dimension of this data is pretty attractive to grad students because, like you said, most health data, like, for example, the, um, the NHATS data, National Health and Aging Trend Survey, that's an annual thing. So you have just annual observations, but this HPS data is every two weeks, and they're incredibly efficient with uploading the data because I just uploaded our data set, and the most recent week we have is the last week of December. So that was a month away, so that's pretty impressive. So I'm curious, so you're looking at the difference in how Medicaid mitigated the effects of mental distress due to job loss and expansion versus non-expansion states. But at the same time, there were other public spending policies for healthcare going on at the same time. Like, for example, the health insurance exchange had some pretty big changes to it that expanded both eligibility and the premium tax credits for the average person. So this could have also mitigated mental distress due to job loss, right? So how do you disentangle this correlation? 
are health insurance exchange subsidies, like that's kind of formerly known as annual premium tax credit. They were part of the ARPA, which was passed in uh, March of 2021. and they expanded this uh, subsidies in a significant way. Um, my data actually stops before the ARPS starts. So that's part one part of it that would make the problem essentially maybe somewhat less significant. But on the other hand, essentially that, that you were right to some extent is that there were other changes, absolutely. The federal level changes, um, for example, uh, Medicaid itself was expanded, like what is called the federal matching for Medicaid that itself was increased by 6.2 percentage points uh, as part of the original CARES Act. And so that essentially meant that, that, that even Medicaid itself at the federal level was changed. And this was available to, to all the states. Uh, there was some eligibility criteria that the states could not restrict eligibility, that states had to keep everybody who was already on the Medicaid uh, role, they have to. They cannot kick anyone out. They cannot charge anybody. So there were some restrictions as to, uh, like, we, like how the states would be eligible for this money. But nonetheless, there were federal changes that was uh, happening, and and that makes the question in in some sense more interesting because some of these changes would mean that we should maybe to some extent see less of a difference between expansion and non-expansion. In other words, we have created a study uh, design where we are really finding maybe what I would call a lower bound of what the true effect might have been without all these changes. In other words, there was these other changes that would potentially reduce the effect of expansion. And what we find is that still we find essentially that there is quite a bit of effect of Medicaid expansion. And, and while I tend to agree with you that, that there, these probably are the expansion effects that we found would have been even bigger uh, if there was no other changes that that would that would taken place in the original um, sort of the, the CARES Act or FFCRA. Like, but what is surprising, or maybe not surprising, maybe not surprising, but what is interesting is that the states that expanded, e- even though the federal government pushed out this additional money, the states that allowed for broad eligibility people had a, an easier time uh, to cope with the distress um, uh, that is associated with the job loss. So quick story, when I was lecturing my statistics students the other day, I briefly talked about my research for maybe 15 seconds. I immediately lost all interest in contact with my students. Everyone tuned out because I said the words Medicaid expansion versus Medicaid non-expansion states. And it was at that very moment I lost everyone. No one was interested in anything I had to say. So I stopped. I did not move forward with that example. But to explain to the average grad student who is maybe in their first or second year and is just getting into this Medicaid research and is just understanding the difference between expansion versus non-expansion states, could you highlight or illustrate how big this difference is? The main difference is in income eligibility thresholds, right? But like, how much does this, is it a drastic difference or is it just a minor difference? I want the audience to understand how big of a difference it is to qualify for Medicaid in an expansion versus a non-expansion state. Like how big is that difference? My my statistics students didn't care at all, Um, but I'm sure a grad student interested in Medicaid research would care more than my statistics students did. I, I, so, so there is there's two things. I'm going to go into the, uh, like the differences and how big the differences could be. I think that as a people in some sense, may not care on its face, but but the data shows that that it does affect people's lives. That that's what we find essentially in, in our research is that 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 when people essentially are faced with difficult situations, uh, these types of social safety nets actually do indeed help them. Now going back to your question of like okay, what is expansion and non-expansion and uh, and how big the differences are. So let me just go back and, and give you a little bit of a background. And, and then sometimes we do get these tunnel visions where uh, we kind of like people in the field, we can, everybody knows what lingo we are talking about. And, right, right. Uh, and then we kind of forget that, well, okay, not everybody is kind of always in looking at this uh, and, and maybe uh, uh, be even aware. So going back, I think I, I was talking about this earlier a little bit, uh, but let me expand on that. So originally when the 
the Affordable Care Act of 2010, um, which was passed during the Obama administration, was originally passed. Uh, it envisioned that all states would ex-Medicaid to all individuals up to 138% of the federal poverty levels. Uh, now, typically before that, Medicaid eligibility in the U.S. was pretty restricted, for, especially for people without children. So if you are an individual without children, the Medicaid eligibility varied from state to state. It could be as low as, for example, 20% of the federal poverty level. So it could be like Medicaid eligibility could be mean that basically if you have any income, uh, you would not be eligible for Medicaid, and certainly in some states. So going from there to 138% in some states was big. Now, there were a few states that already expanded uh, quite a bit. Uh, for example, Massachusetts already had their own health reform uh, before the Affordable Care Act. So it was a little bit different in, in, in Massachusetts. There are a couple of other states that were kind of close to the Affordable Care Act level. D.C., for example, uh, Wisconsin was kind of close. But anyway, so that was 138% was supposed to be the national level. But then a lot of the states did not like that. They thought that uh, it should be a state choice and states sued the uh, the federal government essentially and the Supreme Court uh, in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled that uh, that federal government cannot force the states to expand Medicaid. It was has to be a state level choice. So practically speaking, when in January 1 of 2014, when this was supposed to actually supposed to happen, 20, I believe 26 states uh, chose to expand Medicaid and the other 24 chose uh, not to expand beyond essentially where they already were before the Affordable Care Act. So that's the story of why we even have these expansion states and non-expansion states like that. How did this come about? Now, since then, 12 other states actually have expanded Medicaid. So right now, I believe there are 38 states that have expanded Medicaid. So those are the states that are now we're calling expansion states and 12 states that still have very restrictive Medicaid eligibility criteria, especially for people without children. In some of those non-expansion states, the eligibility for people without children could be very, very restrictive. That is, if you are an able-bodied person uh, without children, having almost any income may mean that you are not eligible uh, for Medicaid. So there's pretty drastic differences between the expansion and non-expansion states when it comes to eligibility. And I did a quick Google search over here um, so everyone listening can understand. So uh, in 2021, if you were living at 100% of the federal poverty level and you have one person in your house, that means you're making no more than $12,000 a year. So 138%, which is the Medicaid eligibility for expansion states, goes up to $17,000 a year. So it's a pretty big difference in eligibility requirements. Um, so it can be very drastic in terms of how many people you have eligible and receiving Medicaid in expansion versus non-expansion states. Yes, let me add like, so, so one thing, that, another thing that we do know, uh, like sort of how big this is, is that we do know from the prior research that how big of an effect expansion had, uh, Medicaid expansion itself had. Of, of all the people who, who were additionally covered after the Affordable Care Act, more than half of them essentially was because of this expanded Medicaid program. So uh, the expansion of Medicaid did have, uh, we know from the prior research, uh, a big effect on a number of people uh, that were newly insured uh, after the implementation of the Affordable Care Act compared to before the Affordable Care Act. So by what mechanisms, either economic or behavioral, does Medicaid or access to Medicaid or coverage via Medicaid can it reduce or mitigate symptoms of mental distress? In your paper, you talk about several mechanisms. Yeah, so that's another really interesting question is that there are two aspects of this. There's two strands in this, in this literature. One, that literature that I've kind of already shown, uh, this is uh, that, that Medicaid, uh, eligibility for Medicaid can reduce uh, distress for everybody, like independent of whether they're lost jobs or not. And, and that might be essentially simply having access. Now, the question is that why, how is it happening? There are two basic channels that could be there. One is, could be that you have better access to uh, the healthcare system. So maybe you can go to your doctor, maybe you have access to prescription medications. So therefore, if you are, you are prone to 
having mental distress, then it can be easily addressed. So therefore, uh, individuals are not going to, as many individuals will not be suffering from, say, anxiety or depression because they would have easy access to doctor or prescription medication. So that's the healthcare access story. There is also this another story which is uh, widely researched and, and documented that, that it could simply be about uh, financial security. For example, having access to health insurance may mean that you are not spending or you don't have to spend as much money on healthcare expenditures. Uh, that might mean that you may be able to just simply be able to spend that money on other necessities like food security or other types of financial security, for example, paying for food, for rent, things like that. We do know that food security or other types of financial security, they also affect uh, mental health. And there is also like research in how food security might affect mental health. Some people think it's more of a biological mechanism where uh, not having enough food or not having the right kind of nutrients might affect your mental health through maybe hormonal mechanisms and things like that. But it could also be simply that you are anxious because you don't know how and where you're going to like, pay for your bills. And we do know like that, that that kind of anxiety might have an effect on mental health. So, so that could be another aspect. So there are these two broad mechanisms. One is that healthcare access. Another could be that having the access to Medicaid may simply reduce uh, financial anxiety, financial distress, or food insecurity. And there is some evidence in the literature that that Medicaid expansion have reduced financial insecurity, uh, especially insecurity related to uh, healthcare related bills in the United States. So that might be another mechanism through which uh, access to Medicaid may affect mental health. So there are several avenues for which access to Medicaid can mitigate symptoms of poor mental health. So now moving on to, and you talked about this already, you use a difference in difference strategy to identify causal results. Basically, we're looking at job loss induced mental health by comparing people who lost jobs and people who did not. Right. In the expansion versus the non-expansion states. So essentially the expansion states were your treatment group. Those groups, they had better, better access to Medicaid because of the increased income thresholds compared to non-expansion states where your control group, they did not have access to increased levels of income eligibility, right? Yes. And so so that's kind of is the first part, uh, kind of the, the starting point of the paper. So first in this paper, I show that in the expansion states, people are much more likely to be covered by Medicaid after losing a job compared to the non-expansion states. So the, the, the starting point of the paper is to just show that, that it is indeed true that if you live in an expansion states, uh, you are much more likely to be covered by Medicaid uh, compared to if you live in a non-expansion state after uh, losing a job. So that means it's indeed true that in the expansion states, they are, they are able to essentially catch more people in their net, so to speak, uh, through this Medicaid expansion. And they're able to catch more people because the net is just bigger in these expansion states because they're allowing people with higher income. So you prove, okay, yes, people in expansion states, after they lose their job, they're far more likely to be covered by Medicaid compared to people in non-expansion states after they lose their job. So that was step one. Okay, we verified that. So then your step two was answering the question, well, now that we know you have more people on Medicaid coverage and expansion states, what does this do for mental health? And what are the main results that you find when you're answering this second research question? So we do find that that people after losing a job, uh, people who are in expansion states, they are less likely to be depressed. Uh, they are less likely to be anxious. In the HPS, the household pulse survey, the data that I am using, they use a patient health questionnaire. Uh, there are four questions that they ask. Uh, first two about anxiety, the last two about depression. And, and this has been clinically verified, these questions, as that they have pretty good track record of like finding people who might clinically be diagnosed as anxious or depressed. Uh, obviously, we do not have any clinical diagnosis in, in, in the paper because uh, individuals are just simply uh, answering questions. These are self-reported answers. Uh, but these questions have been shown that they have pretty good specificity in identifying mental health related uh, issues. So what we do find is that 
people when they lose their jobs, if they live in expansion states, they're less likely to be anxious, less likely to be depressed compared to people who live in the non-expansion states. So, so one issue is that if you just look at people who lost jobs, is that you don't know whether that's simply because of the states, there is something different across the states. And that's where like, comparing with the people who did not lose jobs in the same state comes in is that because we can compare people in the expansion states who lost their jobs versus not. And similar, the same thing, same difference for the non-expansion states. And we do find that uh, the expansion did help to reduce uh, both anxiety and depression in expansion states. So this difference and difference method that you use, why is it better to use or why can you get a more causal identification if you have a diff and diff setup compared to an OLS setup? For all the grad students out there who are just thinking about research questions, would you guide them to getting a more diff and diff identification or what's the difference and why is the diff and diff potentially better than an OLS? So this is a... a, um... This could be a long answer, but I'm going to try to keep it short. So uh, obviously, this is one of the things that uh, that we talk with our students all the time. Uh, and, and, and also, as economists, we think about this all the time, is that how can we identify causal effects? And while the gold standard has always been thought about as an experiment uh, in most social science questions, it's not really a feasible answer. So we look for answers that are more feasible. That is, that can potentially give you a causal uh, effect uh, without essentially running a experiment, which in most cases is not possible. So the advantage of difference and difference over simply comparing cross-section, I was talking about it, is suppose you just compare people who lost jobs in expansion states and non-expansion states. And you find that people who are in expansion states, they are less likely to be depressed. Now, it could be that these people are living in expansion expansion states, they are somehow different, or maybe these states have different characteristics. Uh, maybe these states have other problems uh, that makes all of the people in those states less depressed, whether they are lost a job or even did not lose a job. Those states are just better states to live at. In other words, if you just compare the, the people who lost jobs, then we do not know whether it's coming from the expansion itself, or it's coming from somewhere else. That's where having the, this, this group of people who did not lose the jobs, but live in the same state comes in, because then we can kind of rule out the, the possibilities uh, that it is the state level heterogeneity that's doing it. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that, that, that this is a perfectly causal effect, that there is no more questions can be asked of this, because there is still, there are issues that could be, uh, could still be present because diff and diff assumes certain things uh, that is not uh, always testable. So in other words, what the difference in difference structure gives you is that it, it allows you to take one more step towards what the true causal effect might be. You don't know whether the step is big enough and whether you have reached kind of the true pinnacle of uh, what the causal effect is, but it certainly is better. So if you were comparing two dissertation chapters uh, between two students and one had a causal identification, the student was able to say X causes Y, these are my results, and student B only had an associative relationship established in that X is associated with Y, would you deem the chapter that had a causal identification to be a better or higher quality chapter than just the student who was able to prove association. I've always been curious about this. Does causal identification make a dissertation better? So I think that this is a complicated question um, and, and it depends certainly in the context. Also, I think, so to say, when we say that, well, okay, one is causal and one is not, I do not think causal versus not causal. I think that the right way to think about it is really think about it as a continuum. Uh, like it's a zero to one continuum where and, and where you fall. It's not like, okay, it's, this is causal or not. Like it's not really a binary thing because I think that it's very, very hard to say that this is truly causal. I think that even when you run an experiment, there is always some chance that what you're finding is not really causal, uh, that there could be something that is going on. And, and there are a lot of people 
uh, have talked about this in many contexts that what might be the problems with even, even with experiments, which we consider in the gold standard. Uh, and then of course, there is all these uh, other methods that are in between, like starting from OLS, which would be from more association, but then diff in diff or we use instrumental variables, regression discontinuity, uh, regression kink design, various methods. Now we don't know where each of these is falling in that continuum. Ideally you want to go to one. Uh, that would be the true causal pinnacle. You never know whether you, whether you have reached that or not, even when you're running an experiment. So that I think I think that I said we should first acknowledge that that just because somebody used uh, diff in diff or even instrumental variable or even an experiment, we we are not always completely sure. Uh, we have to look at kind of the context. There could be many things that can go wrong even even within someone which is running an experiment. Now, assuming like so, so that problem, or like assuming away that problem, like so, so just comparing two papers, and instead of like sort of so thinking about this as causal versus non-causal, let's just say one is more causal, or as at least so, so is credibly more causal than the other. I think that at that stage, uh, that would depend. Second question would be on the research question. Uh, I think there are some research question where even showing association might be useful. There are many situations in the real world where even association uh, could be informative, especially if that association has never been shown or people are not aware of that association. Now, having said that, I think that it is in general true that even after saying all of this, that economists, the most questions that economists are interested in, that they're interested in causal relationship. So therefore, in general, we as economists so say, try to figure out the causal effect uh, of like sort of one variable on another. So in general, we tend to prefer uh, or like papers that can credibly establish causality. Uh, but I think sort of say I would keep two things in mind. One is that one, I in my mind, it's not binary, and second is that certainly it is to some extent dependent on context. I'll give you an example. The number of people who are insured in the U.S. went up by a significant amount after the Affordable Care Act was passed. Now, nobody has shown this in a causal way because it affected the whole country. Uh, and there is no credible causal way of proving that this was due to Affordable Care Act. But do we believe that the difference between 2014 and 2015 is really due to Affordable Care Act? I think most people do. I have not seen very many people who are credibly denying that, well, no, 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 all this increase in the in the health insurance rates in the US was due to some other thing, some other unobserved heterogeneity. There is nothing over there. We are just simply looking at the graph, essentially looking at association, and we're making a conclusion. So in some cases, I think that you can credibly say that even just looking at association might establish causality. But I think that is an extreme example. In most cases, I think that is not, that's not how it is. So to paraphrase what you're saying is, it depends. <laughs> it depends on a lot of things. Even if a chapter, even if a dissertation chapter does not necessarily establish a causal relationship, it also depends on the context. And so what you mean by that is, well, if this is an area of research that is novel and no one, there's barely any work in this, and you know, you're one of the first researchers to establish just an associative relationship, then that can be pretty profound to present as a job market paper. Is that kind of what you're saying? I think, again, the, the question is going to be that how much, I think that it's not so much causal versus not. The way that I think about it is that how much additional information are we getting from the paper? If there is, people had no idea about, say, for example, an association exists between these two variables, and that association is useful for whatever reason, then that is that is providing us with, useful information and that's the point of research now whether there's a paper could be a good job market paper or not depends on on many things one is obviously the importance of the question even in association again i don't think association itself is binary choice even when you are do not have for example you're not using one of the traditional econometric methods of establishing causality can you credibly claim that this association tells us something about underlying causality like, for example, I gave you the example of um, the Affordable Care Act and decline in uninsurance rates. I think that most people credibly believe that even though it looks like a succession, it is truly a causal relationship. As it is the, 
the Affordable Care Act that's doing it. Even though we don't have like DIF and DIF or IV or any of that other kinds of traditional methods. So I think like a paper about association could be uh, an, an, an important piece of information. Uh, and as long as it's, I think, adding some valuable information, to me, that is the criteria. Now, sometimes associations may not be useful. Like I think like the, one of the reasons as to why economists are worried about this is that sometimes establishing an association may not mean something. And, and even if there is no formal way of proving causality, I think in that case, it comes a, whether you can provide the context as to why we should think that association, even though it's only association, that it truly is, is, truly is signifying a causal relationship. It may not be done econometrically, but it could be done through providing enough context, like my correct example, that, that basically trying to rule out everything else. Like when you are saying as an association is same as causality, what you are saying is that, well, no, nothing else could have done it. Uh, right. In my Affordable Care Act example, I think that most people believe that nothing else could have done it because nobody can come up with a realistic uh, alternative explanation as to why all of a sudden uh, five, six per uninsurance rates is going to go down by five, six percentage points. Right, right. What advice would you give to a grad student who is trying to either identify a good diff and diff setup or trying to get to a more causal identification? Like in general, what is just general guidance that you would give to a grad student who is perhaps in the early, early stages of the dissertation phase? Would you advise them? Because in my head, the only way that I can, because I'm such a junior economist, the only way that I can really find good diff and diff causal identifications is by reading the new policies that come out every day and seeing, because a new policy is an exogenous shock, and then looking at the diff and diff after it and the causal effects after it. But what advice would you give to a grad student to help them in identifying natural experiments that would lead to a causal identification? I would just like to say, uh, qualify this little bit, saying that well, diff and diff does not always identify causal relationships. Um, diff and diff is, identifies causal relationships only under the assumption of a parallel trend, which by definition is not really testable. So we do something which is test for pre, pre-treatment trends, whether they were similar or not. If, if possible, they, I think, so to say, something like a regression discontinuity or, uh, or having a true instrumental variable that is really valid instrument, which is obviously the, the tricky part, uh, might be even preferred way of uh, establishing causality. Now, the way I think, so to say, that I think the best advice is I think people have always given, which is, I think is also in, in the mostly harmless econometrics book. I think it's good way, it's a good place to start is to start thinking about is that, well, like, what would be the idea? That if you have a question in mind, is that, well, okay, if you just could be sort of the God and if you could just run an experiment, what would you do to answer that question? Now, once you know what, what do you do that if you could just do whatever you wanted, now, you may not be able to get there ever, uh, but that tells you is that where you want to go. It gives you essentially an end point. And then your job is to go to as close to the end point as you can. Now, that might be that it's going to be dependent, dependent on the context. Like you might be able to find a, a way to establish causal relationship that is as close to the ideal experiment that you would have run uh, if you could. It could be defensive. It could be like an IV, it could be a RDD or regression discontinuity, it could be something else. It could be even like sort of say running OLS, but like providing enough context. It could also be a difference in difference in difference that uh, we, we did not talk about, but like I do that a little bit in, the, in this paper as well, which essentially makes the identification even weaker or assumptions for identification even weaker. But whatever you do, I think there are two things. One thing that I think to identify any of these, uh, having a good knowledge about the context is important. Like you, I think you correctly mentioned that thinking about sort of exogenous changes uh, that might take place. For example, a policy change could be, uh, but also like sometimes other rules or quasi-governmental rules could provide people with sort of variation that are useful for identification. Like that's people have done this in the context of variables 
or in regression discontinuity where there are certain rules like in the context of regression discontinuity especially if it's a uh, sharp discontinuity there could be certain rules that makes people on the one side very different from the other side uh, and that might be useful so i think knowing about the context in which you are whatever question that you are interested in that is very important we kind of went on a tangent there about association versus causality, but I think yeah. it's such a fun topic to talk about. Um, okay, so now getting back to the paper. So the paper, you find that people who have lost their job who are living in expansion states tend to fare better mentally because they have access to Medicaid. And I want to hear from you, what's the big implications of this paper? Like what are the long run, not long run, but public policy implications that we should think about knowing hey, these people have better mental health in states that have higher income eligibility thresholds for Medicaid. What does this mean for how we should be directing public spending initiatives, for example, on public health care? It's, it's a complicated question because there are many issues that goes into this calculation. So one example, so clearly there is one conclusion is that, well, okay, if we want better mental health, then having the Medicaid expansion helps because we're still having that debate. Some states still have not expanded Medicaid. We still have 12 states that, that have not expanded Medicaid. So that gives them something to think about. Uh, but obviously there are costs to expand, expanding Medicaid, even though for the expanded Medicaid, uh, for the people who are covered under the expansion, federal government pays 90% of, of the total cost of insuring those individuals. States have to pay. And when the states are paying this 10%, it's coming from somewhere. So it's going to, it has a, nothing is free in this world. In other words, there is some trade-off. And I think that there's clearly observable benefits to having expanded the Medicaid for states that have done it. And the states that have not done it, for them, this would be an interesting thing to think about is that given whatever cost that they're going to face, and, and that's certainly not zero, is to think about is that, well, okay, given that these are the kind of benefits that we might expect, whether we should think about expanding or not. I think that's where, from a policy perspective, is, is this might help policymakers, is that this gives them a concrete example of what is the benefit of doing this, as opposed to simply saying, well, you know, like you might get some benefits, but it's intangible. You don't know what is going to be, how big is going to be. This at least tells the policymakers, okay, here is going to be the benefit. And they might have some idea about the costs. And I don't know what the cost and the benefit calculation for each state is going to be. But at least this tells them what the benefit is going to be so that they can make any decision. I'm kind of curious, and this leads me to my next question, but I'm going to contribute to the answer for this question before I ask you it. Um, so that's a good point you brought up. Like we can give concrete benefits of a piece of legislation, the Medicaid expansion, for example, and show lawmakers, okay, um, I mean, according to your results, Respondents who live in expansion states are less likely to have moderate to severe mental distress following their job loss. I'm really curious what are the public spending implications for that if we have people who are faring better mentally in these states. What are like the long run consequences of this? If someone is, you know, after they lost their job, they're doing better mentally in an expansion state than a non expansion state, what does this mean for? public health expenditures down the road? Or what does this mean? I just read a paper um, that came on Ember. It was a working paper. People who, uh, it was a RCT done in uh, Ghana, I think. And respondents who partook in um, cognitive behavioral therapy um, were doing much better mentally and they had less missed work days. They contributed more to a local economy. They were far more active consumers, for example. So I'm really curious what are the economic impacts down the road, consequential impacts, because people are doing better mentally. Does this mean that they are contributing more to the economy? Does this mean that they're working more days? Does this mean that my question for you is, from this research you've done after this paper, what are new questions that arise that an eager grad student, for example, might be interested in answering? And one of those questions that I'm interested in is what are the economic implications of this down the road? Does this mean people are contributing to the economy more if they're under less distress? That, that certainly is plausible. Uh, it's most likely as well. So one thing is that 
there could be just simply some short-run effects, which is that people who are less depressed, uh, they might be able to sort of say, maybe get back to the job market, become again fully employed and, and contribute, like as you were saying. In other words, essentially, like this might be a shorter downturn for those individuals, uh, as opposed to individuals who might suffer from like, more long-term uh, effects of of depression and anxiety. Now, this is not something that, that we were able to do in this paper, starting at like long-term effects, because for that you need longitudinal data is to see that, okay, one people get depressed, how quickly and how easily do they come out of it? I think there is quite a bit of evidence now that people who are diagnosed with uh, depression and, uh, and anxiety once they are more likely to be diagnosed like again and again. So it does seem like that, that there is some sort of persistency in it. So maybe keeping people out of it has some benefits. It certainly is possible. And, and I think there is also some research showing that people might be certainly more active, going, gainfully employed, maybe missing, missing less days, as you mentioned, or having higher productivity. And, and not just that, they might be simply kind of like just more productive citizens when they have better mental health. We know that the costs that are associated with poor mental health is, is extremely high. And, and any, any policies, any cost-effective policies that can reduce a direct and indirect costs that are associated with like poor mental health might be essentially like might be paying for themselves. That kind of is going back to kind of what we were discussing before is that certainly Medicaid expansion is, is costly. It, it, nothing is free in this world. Either it's federal government paying it, state government paying it, somebody is paying it. But the question is that no matter who is paying it, if you can get enough benefit out of it. For example, like one extreme example is that very often people with poor mental health, they show up in emergency rooms and treating people in emergency rooms is not a very cost effective way of, of treating people. So if we can improve the mental health, apart from some of the things that you mentioned, which is definitely is true, but also just think about just the health aspect of it. If we can keep them out of the ears and, and get them treated in their primary care physician's office, that is cost effective. Right. How can we save money at our hospitals by redirecting patients from the ER and, you know, once they're hitting a psychotic break and they're having a mental episode and they hit the ER and it's a really expensive hospital bill, what if we could have prevented that months, maybe even years prior by having them seeing either a mental health professional or their primary care physician? What are the cost trade-offs of a policy if we invest in bettering mental health now? How is that going to affect people three years down the line? Um, so this has been a really fun conversation today. I had a great time talking to you about this paper. And thanks for your time and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, happy to do it. It was, it, it was very interesting to, uh, to talk to you. This is Healthonomics. For more, go to healthonomics.co, where you can comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. I'm your host, Aina Katsikas. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.